Hi, my name is Brooke Rodriguez. I'm a Taino mother living in Matinecock territory. Mijuxis. My name is Desiree Kane. I'm a Miwok Two-Spirit. Osio. My name is Mia Beverly. I am from Sand Hill Band of Cherokee and Lenape, and welcome to First Foods. A program made by and for Indigenous people and our allies. Who are ready for a new day for old ways. First Fruits program is produced by Grinding Stone Collective in partnership with Green Feather Foundation and Her Many Voices Foundation, along with important support from community members like you. We have some protocols we'd like to go over with you. Land acknowledgement. We recognize, uphold, and respect Native nations and their life ways above all else as the ruling governance of Turtle Island and Abia Yala. Everyone attending this space must uphold the same. Native knowledge. Lessons learned are not for non-natives to monetize on or repackage as their own. Native knowledge systems belong to the cultural communities they come from and to the guest teachers in our programming. Foraging and harvesting. Always seek permission from tribal communities to forage and harvest. These medicines or foods may be seasonal or being left to replenish themselves. Also respect if the answer is no. Intertribal space. We are all from different nations and regions, so what may be odd or undesirable as food to you might be good to someone else. Respect that and don't insult or belittle. Respect tribal food, land, and medicine sovereignty. Remember that majority of foods are shared by many different tribes, but with different names. Do not try to claim exclusivity or copyright for your own people. It's okay to share the name as you know it. It is not okay to create dissent over a different name. No dissent over blood quantum or otherwise more Indianer than you fighting. Food sovereignty. First people have the rights to hunt, fish, forage, and harvest in their traditional territories. It is unacceptable to critique traditional or contemporary dietary styles as a non-native. Please put any questions that you have in the chat. The last 30 minutes of class, we often invite attendees to come on and interact with our instructors. Disclaimer, First Foods is for educational purposes only. Before using or ingesting any herb or plant for medicinal or culinary purposes, please consult a physician, medical herbalist, or suitable professional. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome, welcome to another class of First Foods program. My name is Desiree. As you just saw, uh, we are coming back to do a wonderful show on everyday food sovereignty. 
The topic is feeding nations and feeding each other with Choctaw chef Britt Reed, who is going to be doing a cooking demo for us and talking to us about a fascinating topic. Now you usually would see Brooke Rodriguez, the program director who you saw at the beginning of our intro video. But um, today we have Mia Beverly. She is one of our co-hosts joining us with Britt Reed and she is going to introduce us. So take it away, Mia. Thank you, um, OCO. My name is Mia, as you know. Uh, I am from Sand Hill Band of Cherokee and Lenape. Um, and I currently reside in Washington, D.C., also on, um, also known as the Piscataway Territory. Um, I'd like to introduce Britt. Britt Reed is a, a Choctaw descendant, is a cook, teacher, artist, and activist for the food sovereignty movement, preparing and preserving indigenous foodways. She is the founder of the Food Sovereignty is Tribal Sovereignty Facebook group, she is also an iCollective member, an organization made up of seed keepers, knowledge keepers, chefs, and cooks since 2017, and is a food service provider for the Tulalip tribes. Now, Britt can take it away. Dallas, Texas, took Tulalip, Washington, Hello everyone, my name is Britt Reed. Um, I am Choctaw and Black, and I'm also a cook. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and I currently live on the Tulalip Reservation uh, in Tulalip, Washington. Um, since I live here, <laughs> I also wanna give a disclaimer that um, sometimes the internet like cuts in and out. It's just the nature of uh, the particular internet that we have here at Tulalip. Um, so if I, kind of glitch or anything like that, just know like, I'll be back. <laughs> but it's just kind of, it happens. Um, so today um, I wanted to go over, like like they said, uh, everyday food sovereignty and also a little bit about distribution. I think that um, oftentimes in this uh, like traditional foods revitalization movement uh, or what people call like the food sovereignty movement, a lot of times people think that it intrinsically means just traditional foods. But when we talk about food sovereignty, uh, what we're talking about is the inherent right of a community to be able to decide and control what their food source is. And so this doesn't necessarily mean that it's always just traditional foods, but that this also, at least for our tribal communities and our, our um, urban Indian communities, that it definitely does also include those traditional foods. And so I just wanted to kind of like lay that out there um, as we go into this discussion and then also kind of define also what food insecurity means because sometimes we also like confuse what those two things are. Um, and food insecurity often means um, not having access to like healthy and fresh foods within like a 10 mile radius. And oftentimes people also refer to that as like a food apartheid. Um, so a little bit of what I'm talking about, we'll go into that a little bit. Um, and my apologies in advance too, if it sounds like a little academic, but that's also my background as well. Um, and so I think an important thing that when we talk about food sovereignty is that oftentimes though in this movement, a lot of times it take, people have taken this in as like a individual matter, like this is really happening with our communities, right? Like 
uh, as communities, we should be able to have um, control of our food systems and be able to decide like what we want. And so that means that whether we're doing that as um, urban Indian communities, finding ways to make those foods available to everybody, or whether we're doing um, making policy in like tribal governments, um, like that's ways that we can make that more accessible where it's not just like every person out for themselves or every family out for themselves to get um, traditional foods or get those access to it. Cause I believe that everybody um, that's native should have access to traditional foods. Um, those are our relatives. Those are, um, you know, agreements that we have had since time of memorial with these plant relatives, with these uh, animal relatives, with like these, um, you know, like creatures of the ocean and lakes and rivers and stuff. Um, and so we should be able to get access to those things and be able to engage in those things so that we can continue those, uh, those responsibilities and relationships that we have. Um, so, um, sorry, looking over my notes here and feel free also Mia or y'all to like jump in with questions. Um, I think that like, when I think about the food distribution, like we've always been a people who have tried to make these foods accessible. Right now, I know that there's people that are going back to the land. I think when we talk about land back, it's really important that we also talk about like, what does it mean to go back to the land? And it's been really inspiring to see since I think about 2015 is when it really began to like pick up or at least be like really seen that people are going back to understand like what are their seeds? Um, how do they like keep them? Um, how do they plant them and work with them? Um, I can honestly say that in the four years that I've been trying to grow, uh, it's been nice to have people who are way more knowledgeable than me to be giving me directions on how to do that because it's a lot harder than I ever imagined it to be. Um, I've not yet had a successful corn crop but I look forward to the day when I do, but I know that being able to have that network to talk to people who have a lot more experience and who have been um, keep, like keeping like care of like those seeds are an intrinsic way, like an important way that like I myself can get back to that place where as a Choctaw person, um, as a Choctaw Hoyo, that like I'm able to engage in that traditional relationship with growing those corns, growing with the, um, the beans and the squash um, and to be able to carry on that tradition and making those foods available to not just like myself, not just to like um, my partner and his family who I live with, um, not just to the Tulela community, but also to like the Chata people, the Chata Okla who live here in the Northwest as well, um, who definitely de like would love to be able to get access to those foods, irregardless of the fact that they live far away from like Oklahoma or Mississippi or Louisiana. Um, One of the things I think that's also been inspiring um, sorry <laughs> uh, like thinking about the ways that like we're always trying to make those foods available like for me, when I haven't been able to get those traditional foods through like family trade, through gifting, um, powwows have been really important in order to get those things like for me, um, like the first place I ever tried like wasna, 
right? Like the Lakota, um, how I just got like kind of travel food, <laughs> which is made up of like uh, bison and fat. And then oftentimes choke cherry as well. Like that was at like a Portland powwow. And then the later version of that too, where it was cornmeal and then the fat and um, the choke cherry. And then also places like, um, you know, like festivals, whether that be like Choctaw Days in Mississippi or Labor Day uh, in Tushkahoma, Macaw Days up here, Canoe Journey, uh, so on and so forth. Those have been intrinsic places to be able to get access to those foods um, or whether that be like giveaways or, or whatever that might be, feasting days, though I've never been to a feasting day because I haven't really been in the Southwest like that. Um, but I know for like urban Indians and other folks like that's or that don't have that connection in their family to get those access or the knowledge base to go out and get those foods. Um, like those have been important places to be able to go and get those, which with COVID happening, um, you know, as soon as that started up, I kind of became worried, right? Um, it wasn't just that we weren't gonna be able to go and go to those places, right? Um, which brings up like, how do we like continue like our cultural ways and pass on those things? Um, but it's like, how do we access those foods? And what's been inspiring is to see more and more native food producers get involved, like tribal uh, producers and other ones uh, get involved in like making those traditional foods and selling them. And granted, not all of them are, are available, but you know, Anishinaabe people that are over here in the Northwest now can get access to Manumen, to the wild rice and not only like wild rice period, but if they want leech lake, they can get that. If they want white earth, they can get that and so on and so forth. Um, or if it's uh, like maple sugar, which I don't know if y'all have ever heard of, but that has been one of the biggest food blessings in my life <laughs> that I've discovered. Um, it's so good, so good. Dynamite hill farms uh and also zima bingwang uh also make that and it's incredible um and just like the wide variety of traditional foods out there i think the great lakes foods are on my mind because i have such great memories of the intertribal food summit uh and tasting those for the first time um but i remember there being a story that i had once heard uh and it was of this group of students they had gone out to one of the pueblos in the southwest and they talked to one of the um the governors out there and one of the students was like isn't it great that people are coming back home and they're being involved in ceremonies and things like that and uh you know like he kind of like was kind of like yeah no it's been good they've been coming back from the cities uh and they're like okay so like but isn't that a good thing like uh like wouldn't you be excited about that like people are coming home and being involved culturally He's like, well, without them being on the land, they might sing the songs, but they don't know what it's about. And I think for me, um, that's a really important point to think about um, because it's, I mean, there's, how do I talk about that? <laughs> Put away. Um, I think that with these tribal businesses, making it so that people actually can earn a living on the land, engaging in those relationships, we're completing that circle, right? Like people don't have to choose between having to go to the city um, and work out there, or, you know, like it's not a, it's not so much of like a, a binary anymore on that. Like you can work at home and be involved on the land, um, creating that food and like beginning to understand that relationship while also 
making that food available to our relatives who are in the cities. And I think it's important that, like I said, that we continue to support those businesses so that that, that full circle kind of happens. Um, for me, like I've lived both in the urban setting, like I said, I grew up in Dallas uh, and now like I live in Tulalip. Um, I've also lived in Chicago too. And I think like a, a beautiful thing that I would love to see one day is to be able to go to markets where they're selling those traditional foods that's easily accessed, um, whether that's like in Minnesota or Dallas or Seattle or Grand Rapids or wherever that might be. Um, and so I hope that maybe one day somebody that's listening <laughs> and has much better business sense than I ever do uh, will begin to make that happen. And I know back in, in Choctaw Nation, they're certainly making uh, markets and stuff, uh, Choctaw Nation sponsored food markets, uh, both to kind of combat like diabetes and the chronic health issues that are going on in the community. But it'd be really great to see those foods being made. Um, and then also like when they're able to make the squashes and the corns and the beans and stuff like that more available, being able to be able to sell those things. Um, let's see, got a whole bunch of notes. I think another really powerful thing that I've seen here in Tulalip, um, speaking from my own experience here, I work as the diabetes service provider for the, um, the Tulalip tribes. When I came out of culinary school and, um, and my master's in public administration with a tribal governance um, concentration, I had spent that time like really study traditional foods and the impacts and like how not being able to, to access those has had like a strong detrimental effect on our health. Um, and I came out very gung-ho being like, oh cool, we're gonna get the community um, and we're all gonna eat traditional foods. It's gonna be all salmon all day, uh, venison all day, elk all day, berries, um, nettles, the works. And what I didn't understand is that um, people weren't ready for that. And that's where I come back to when we talk about food sovereignty, it doesn't always have to be just traditional foods. Um, in my experience, like sometimes you have to edge people into that. And I forgot my own journey with that too. Um, you know, being adopted out, I didn't always be able to eat tanchi labona or um, banaha or uh, walashki or like any of these things, wild onions and eggs or nothing. Um, I too had that process of having to find my first recipe and be uh, in a sense in a way, even though it sounds really corny, like kind of brave uh, and try out that, that initial tanchi labona uh, recipe and go from it and not add more than just the salt that I was told to add into there. So I could really try and experience like what that dish was about. Um, and I forgot that you can't just jump head first into it. That's not really, I mean, like maybe for some people that's how it goes, but um, for a lot of people, it's kind of like dipping your toe in the water. Um, even though like the elders I worked with and the community members that I worked with may have grown up here on the reservation. We're certainly used to like having like salmon and berries um, at gatherings and stuff. Like maybe like salmon berries was a little bit too much, uh, which is the first berry that we have here uh, with the blossoms that are just coming out now. Um, or maybe fiddlehead ferns looks just a little bit too weird right now. 
or the nettles, they have like um, bad memories of running through them as kids and getting stung all over. So now maybe people want to stay away from, from the nettles. And so um, I think, and also they have like the history here too, where, you know, like a lot of other places, there's commodities, people get used to certain kinds of foods. Um, in addition to that, like the border town here, like if you looked visibly native, like you might get denied service. And so um, not everybody might travel so far off the reservation uh, for whatever reason. And so to try and reintroduce even just healthy foods is a part of that longer process, um, showing people how to cook different vegetables and how it can be actually taste good and not mushy and weird <laughs> coming from a can. Um, and then moving into like, okay, like let's go out and try maybe some of these other traditional foods that they may not be as accustomed to, or maybe looks a little bit weird or sounds a little bit weird, like salmon head soup. Like maybe they remember like their grandma, like eating that, but salmon head and salmon head soup sounds a little bit too weird. But I think in like taking these like smaller steps uh, to, to bring those into their homes and into their families um, is one of those ways that gradually you can become, like your diet can be more and more uh, traditional based. And with that also, like I said, goes out, like how do you go out and gather, like you can't get nettles in the store as much or salmon berries, or there's a berry here, thimbleberry, where as soon as you take it off of the, the bush, essentially like you better eat it cause it's done. Um, and I know other places have foods like that. Like I think of like, um, like pawpaws, for example, like that's not gonna last a long time. Like you better be ready to use that right then, which is not really how we're, programmed with the current food system that we have. Um, but I remember it was said too that, you know, like for a lot of people who are in those urban spaces, like they may not have the networks to go out and gather. Um, they may not be able to know like which lands to go to, to get things. So you kind of do have to know the land and you need to know like, how do you watch the land, right? Like we just got done like watching the nettles, like, all right, are they ready yet? Are they ready? Um, but every year, like I miss the, the fiddlehead ferns. I was actually just like looking out my window at, the, at them and um, I can see now that for the fourth year in a row, I've missed them. Um, but it's because you have to have that knowledge of the land and know like where to look and keep an eye out and be ready to move. Um, and not everybody has that flexibility and they're scheduled to move when the land says move or be able to know like how to process that food after you go out and get it. Cause that's kind of like the first step. Uh, I usually get really excited about going out and gather all the nettles. And then I really remember once I sit down and start, um, you know, separating out the stems from the leaves, how much work that is. And then also the fact too, that my hands are gonna sting. <laughs> um, so you have to be prepared for both that, uh, the watching the land, knowing where to look, being ready to move and the land says move, um, you know, just the processing itself, knowing how to do it and what your game plan is on that and how you're gonna save that is a whole thing and then um, being ready to do that processing. Otherwise you going out gathering is like kind of a waste of time. Um, if you're gonna let that stuff go to waste and um, that's food that could have gone to you and your family and then maybe also the community and elders. Um, so it's kind of a, a responsibility in itself. And there's more things around gathering too that I think is uh, you know different from plant to plant and from area to area. Um, but I think that one of the things that isn't often talked about is that thankfully, fortunately and unfortunately, 
uh, I think it's like 70%, 60 to 70% of most produce that are available in the grocery store and certainly like in different cuisines originate from the Americas. And so like, again, like making those baby steps, like maybe eating nettles wasn't my first deal. Um, I remember getting really excited about traditional foods. And so I kind of learned like, okay, so like what are the foods that are traditional, but are in the grocery store? Um, I'm like, okay, corn and beans and squash. Obviously we've got three sisters. Um, maybe they sell bison every once in a while, like ground bison, okay, I can do that. Um, you know, like chilies um, and using that as a pathway in. And I think that's like a really good thing to remember because if you don't have those networks or those access, there's still ways for you to gauge and trying to like, quote unquote, indigenize your diet, um, or at least taking like those baby steps. And then like, I would say also like definitely go look. Um, I have available, I think maybe Maya and them have it, maybe it's not brought up or Brooke has it, but um, if you go to the iCollective um, Facebook page, pinned to the top is a list of native producers, uh, food producers, and there's a ton of them there and it's all sorted out by region. And so like maybe you've gotten to a place where you feel excited and comfortable of like trying to get some traditional foods um, and want to go out and start trying to get those. And so you could go and order from there and then bring those into your home and start working with those. Um, and I think that's like a really good way, again, to support those tribal businesses, to complete that circle um, and also to start indigenizing your own diet um, in a way. See. I can actually pull that up briefly if you would like me to. Oh yeah, go for it. Okay. I, do a I will say the South is a little lacking and I say that with a little tear as somebody who has a tribe that comes from the South. <laughs> so this is on the iCollective page and you can see at the very top it's pinned and they have this wonderful resource here. Look at, I mean, it just keeps going and going by region on the continent, which is just so cool. A lot of people ask, where can I buy things? They don't have access. This is where you have access to things um, that you might want to look. You can even get coffee. That's just wonderful. It is extremely extensive. So definitely go take a look at that. Yeah. And um, I think that, I mean, in terms of like ways to try and make policy changes within your community. So it's not just like you and your family or like you and your friends or like whatever. Um, I know like throughout uh, the COVID, even though it's not a policy change, like we've certainly had, um, you know, like a food apartheid here at Tulalip. Um, You essentially can pretty much when we get food at the Walmart that's on the edge of the reservation or um, from the garden at the diabetes program. Um, we had to cut our, our garden days, which was kind of sad. We'd have the community come in and, and do gardening um, because of COVID restrictions. Um, and so what we did was both like, and not those, you'd get like a CSA box from farmers in Skagit, which is like just north of us. Um, but with those going away, like we had to really think about like, okay, like what are we going to do? Because we can't cook for the community, which is real weird. <laughs> so that's like what I do. I'm like, how do I can't cook for the community? Um, but we be able to like figure out other ways like partnering with um, a local farmer um, at Garden Treasures and we'd have folks be able to go out with their family groups and go uh, 
glean or or get I guess gathering is not really the right way, harvest, harvest foods from the farm itself, um, doing you picks, which was really great. Um, and was still like kind of like a way for people to get back out on the land and also like fit within the, the COVID restrictions, which was important. Um, but policy wise, there's a food sovereignty assessment tool, which I think is really great and important. Um, it goes through and really looks at like all the different aspects of like, um, food sovereignty in your community or like what, what's the status of that within your community and like really breaking it down so that way you have something to look at that shows you like where you can improve as like um like a tribal government kind of situation but i'm pretty sure like it might be able to be it'd be harder because you wouldn't have control over a city government but i'm sure that it would still be something that'd be possible for like an urban space possibly or like manipulated in a way to to fit that um like i like i noted before like we have like our own group of like diasporic uh choctaws up here it's not like a 501c3 or anything it's just like literally like choctaw people moved up to the northwest because of the dust bowl and stuff and so now we get together to be able to hang out speak the language um engage in different cultural stuff talk about families and histories and stuff but being able to get access to land, to be able to grow our own traditional foods, I think is something that we're moving forward to and is a way to make it available to, um, you know, like that group of folks and then also other folks so that won't just stay within like our circle of uh, Chaka Uglo up here. Um, the Chief Seattle Club, speaking of like city um, sovereignty solutions, food sovereignty solutions. Um, here in Seattle, I think like a lot of urban spaces, there's a large number of um, native houseless people. And so the Seattle, um, the Seattle uh, Chief Seattle Club is the one that kind of like helps out and caters to um, that population of folks. And recently, in addition to making housing, which is really cool, and then also a vocational program of like working in a cafe um, and getting that experience, uh, they've opened up what they call the sovereign farm. And so they'll be growing traditional foods there to make that available to the community and get people like on the land working with those foods and like upholding those relationships or introducing people to, to those plants to start those relationships. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of a lot of other things. I know Dene Nation, Navajo Nation did like what they called like a food tax uh, thing a number of years ago, which was uh essentially like if you like bought any processed foods or sodas there'd be a tax on that but that tax ends up going into having food sovereignty programs and so that's like a a policy level solution to like making those traditional foods more available especially in a space where um you know there's like large food apartheid there um and i think that's about all of my points there um, I can probably like briefly go into questions real quick if anyone had any burning ones before transitioning over to the demo. I think Mia actually had a question that was in the chat. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wrote real quick. I was wondering, um, what was the first meal you made from like a native recipe or like earliest you can recall? And how did it turn out? Yeah, the first one I made was Tanchi Labona. And so that's kind of like a, I would say a traditional Choctaw food, but I know the Chickasaws also have it. They call it Pashofa. Uh, and 
traditionally that would have had like some kind of like wild game in it. Um, we have the unfortunate history in the Southeast of like the Spaniards leaving pigs in our areas. Um, hence like the wild boar mascot or whatever for um, Arkansas or whatever. Um, and then because our deer population at one point because of the, the trade or the yeah, the fur trade, like they all kind of died out. So we transitioned into pork. So now this dish, when you have it, it's usually gonna have pork and hominy in it at minimum. Some folks throw in um, like sweet corn. I personally like sweet corn in it. I feel like it balances it out. And that's the first one I ever had. And it's such a simple dish. It's like literally water, pork, hominy, and maybe corn, salt, that's it. And I kind of struggled because I was really used to just like throwing in a bunch of spices and stuff. I was like, mm, this could really be dope with some garlic. And I was like, no, okay. I need to just do salt. I need to like chill out, just let it do its thing, see what happens. And what I found was that by just trusting, uh, you know, a thousand years of people eating uh de bona can't go wrong. Um, but just trusting that uh, and giving it that time to cook and then using that salt to kind of accent the flavor. I found that like it had like this really beautiful, um, like the, all the flavors just came together like really beautiful to be like this wonderful, simple, like delicious dish. That's still probably one of my favorites actually. And I'm really thankful too. Like I converted my partner's Coast Salish family to, <laughs> to liking a Tanchi Labona. So they're getting into all that now. I think there's folks, including me, who encounter some fear. I'm I'm afraid of doing something wrong or maybe not going about it in the right way. And but there is where you have to take a leap and trust yourself, but also trust what you've been taught, right? Because yeah. you've been taught something. Getting over that initial fear, like I might do this wrong. Also, when you're reconnecting with your roots, it's interesting because you take the first bite and you're like, this is the food that has been tasted for millennia. It's, it's a really kind of outside time in a way. You know, you're tasting all of the things that your grandmas and grandpas and everyone have been tasting for so long. I love that story. Yeah, and I mean, I think even if you mess up in some way, like maybe you burn something, <laughs> maybe it's not a mess up or um, you know, it's not the end of the world. Like you can always do it again. Um, it's, it doesn't always have to be like your one and done kind of time. So I know I've definitely, um, the recipe I started with had way more salt in it than I'm generally comfortable with. Um, I went to like a more traditional one where like I wouldn't add in so much. Cause again, like, um, I'm not, I worry about the impact of all that sodium in that dish. I want to eat traditional, but like I don't want my health to suffer. Um, and some of the ways that these recipes have been brought forward in time have lent itself to maybe some not so healthy ingredients, so to say. And so I know for myself, um, I didn't want to have bland tonchi labona, which is certainly a thing. <laughs> but I didn't want to have super salty, unhealthy tonchi labona either. So like the compromise um that I ended up with which I thought I was all smart being like oh I'm so cool my culinary uh experience knowing how to make stocks 
And then realized like that was just my ego because then I went and looked at other recipes were like, yeah, leave the pork backbone in there. It's like, yeah, if you leave the bones in there, even though it sounds weird, because again, some things sound weird. You're like, mm, I don't know about that. Um, but learning that like bones are bones and then like different vegetables, usually like um, carrots, onions, and celery are kind of your base or how you make broths and stocks. Um, bones got less weird for me. And so it's like, yeah, of course, I'm gonna leave that pork shoulder in there. And lo and behold, like flavor was bomb because <laughs> you essentially made like a stock out of it and like maybe pour like a corn cob in there. Um, and they just took that out before eating and it was so, so much better, so much more flavorful. And there's times I don't even have to add a grain of salt. Um, and so sometimes like you're saying, just like trusting what it says, trusting what you've been taught, even if it's on a weird, just like go with it, it's been time and tested. So it may not be as weird as you think. <laughs> Yeah, we've really had a number of teachers who have talked about bones, bone broth for health. And I mean, bone broth has a ton of benefits for your health. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. Well, so I have some slides for you. Would you like me to pull them up or would you like more Q&A? Yeah, we can pull them up and then probably as cooking, um, we could do the Q&A. And so like, just as a, um, so I did some of these earlier uh, when we initially talked about this, uh, Brooke and I had talked about different things like prepping. I know that sometimes uh, cooking can seem overwhelming for people. Maybe you don't have a lot of time. Um, so there are things like with this dish uh, that you can just go ahead and prep ahead of time. Personally, like you'll see in these slides, like I did the watercress, I did the butternut squash, the summer squash, the onion and the zucchini ahead of time, as well as the beans. Um, so, I mean, like if you have some time, you're like, okay, I have enough time right now just to prep this and then I'll cool it off, put it in the fridge or whatever. Then you can do that and pull it out when you're about to cook. Um, the dish that I'm gonna do today, I know a lot of people are really familiar with uh, wild rice bowls. And I think those are real cool, love wild rice. But I also recognize that, uh, you know, some of the other tribes outside the Anishinaabe, like even my tribe did have wild rice, but it certainly was not to the extent as corn was. Um, and I know like um, the first time I ever had corn mush, I was introduced to that by Carlos Baca, who is a Utiwa Indonesia chef, uh, which actually the, call him the activist formerly known as chef. <laughs> uh, but uh they make uh, corn mush a lot out where he's at. And uh, I discovered later on doing some more research about my own uh, tribe's cuisine that we also had a corn mush. And then also talking to people who are Mohawk, they talk about having corn mush. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that tribes who traditionally grew corn in general or even traded for it had mush. Cause I mean, when you think about making grits, for example, it's a pretty easy dish. Um, if you got some water and some, um, ground down corn and stuff, then you can pretty much make mush. So instead of doing the wild rice, that's gonna be the basis of it. And really like, even though these are uh, ingredients that I have, um, you can do anything that you want. Um, you don't have to feel restrained to these ingredients. Um, for me, talking about distribution and thinking about trades. Um, so in addition to being Chata, like I am adopted out to a white family, but I'm also Honka adopted. And so um, my dad is Lakota, he's from the bear family, which will kind of be like a joke thing here in a second, but they go out and they gather the first people who ever got me interested in traditional foods and talking about that. And 
uh, good ways to be in a kitchen were my parents, uh, Gerald Barron, Rebecca Chavez. Um, and so that's kind of where the root of my journey has been. In addition to like my um, initial adoptive family always having us in the kitchen and helping out. Um, so, I mean, I think this is also a thing where you can have like your nieces and nephews or like your kids helping out in the kitchen. I think that's really integral also to helping them on their food journey and being comfortable in that space. So I got um, actually choke cherry from my mom, my dad, they went out and gathered that themselves as well as um, this uh, wild onion. They dehydrated it after gathering it and cleaning it up and then uh, kind of just put it through a grinder. And so that's how it's like in a powder format. I don't know if you can see it very well. So if you're all gathering wild onions right now and want to have it later on, um, but maybe don't want to freeze it, that's certainly like a way to do it. Um, they also go out and get berries. They get a whole number of stuff, but like I said, kind of the joke there. So they got bear jelly, which is uh, the blackberry, elderberry, apple, and raspberry jelly. You can use whatever jelly you want. You're not restrained to doing the most, like I feel like I'm doing over here. <laughs> and then, um, you know, it's like relation ships like people give you stuff they trade stuff and so I got um three leaf sumac which grows in the southwest up where Carlos Baca is at um and this is the kind of sumac that's traditional over there but I know that there's certainly sumac available in the grocery aisle for a lot of places and also there's other kinds of sumac that you can gather um I was really fortunate also to get this is like what I'm going to be using for ooh, for the wild rice bowl, I'm actually using two because I kind of like mixing it up texturally. And so with um, corn, cornmeal or corn flour, like it comes in like all sorts of different grits. Sometimes it just depends like who's doing it. Um, so I got this like Oneida white corn and uh, you can't really see it through the bag because it's um, a little gritty, but it's like a higher grit kind of corn. And so really like usually I'll take a little bit more time just because it's got to hydrate a little bit more and get softer. But then I also have from Ramona Farms, which is a Tohoto Odom um, farm that you can just go to RamonaFarms.com or whatever and be able to, to order it. And you see that there's, it's a finer grain. They also have there at that site, temporary beans, which are really dope. They're a lot smaller. I will say as a caveat, uh, some people think that they're always crunchy uh, and I refute that notion. <laughs> They just, they take a lot longer to boil than other ones. So just keep on boiling them. That's when I would definitely like maybe prep ahead of time. If you're like, oh, sweet. I want to go get these temporary beans, which are really delicious. Um, boil them for longer. And going out to that, uh, that farm um, just north of here, Garden Treasures, they carry some traditional uh, varieties. And so this is a Hadatsa shield bean, shield figure bean. And so like, that's what I'm using today. Um, and I went ahead already and prepped it. So we can probably, oh, and also say two. And making the corn mush, you don't have to add an ash. Uh, I do that because that's how I was taught by Carlos Baca how to do it. And so I'm adding in some ash today. And uh, ash is usually pretty good for making the nutrients and corn more available to your system. That's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, like people up and down the Americas would add ash to their corn um and nationalize that and help that um the whole come off and make that available to your system so you can actually digest that and get those nutrients um and i think that has some other health benefits i've heard elders talk about but i'm forgetting exactly what they are but my partner smokes uh meats and fish so we just saved it um what i learned from um arlie doxator who's a oneida um traditional food chef who's really nice he said to keep it in some airtight containers 
because the more water it takes on from the air, the less effective it's going to be. So say if you're trying to make hominy uh, next to some corn, you're going to have to use even more to get the same effect as just a smaller amount if you had it um, if you hadn't put it in an airtight container. So we can go into that slide. Sorry, that was a little longer explanation than I thought. Okay, so is it this next slide here for food prep? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I know some people are really comfortable in the kitchen. These are my time lapse video of me prepping these earlier. You can cut up onions, you can dice them however you want. I kind of like them in slices, kind of like that for um, cooking them with the, the zucchini and the summer squash that I'll be doing. Um, if anyone's like had also like bean bean bop before, um, kind of putting all these ingredients on top kind of remind me a little bit of bean bean bop in a way. Uh, this is how you would process our prep butternut squash. Um, I would say if you're doing a lot of it, um, wear some gloves. It has a way of drying out your skin and leaving like a weird film on it. Um, I've had to process way too much of it before, but if you're just doing a small one like that, you'll probably be fine. But um, we'll still leave that residue. It's just like a kinds of heads up on butternut squash if you can't get it already cut up in the store. And of course, zucchini. Um, this is the way I cut it for this. Feel free again, like if you like dicing it, however, uh, up to you. There's no hard and fast rules on this dish. Um, really, it's um, I say that the idea of it's more of a technique than like a straight up recipe. It's a suggestion, not a rule. This is what I had available. Uh, so this is what I'm using today, but you might have other things available in addition to cornmeal in your pantry. So, uh, you know, just feel free to use what you have or what you prefer. Um, even if you're like, I'd rather have bison on it, or I'd rather have salmon or I'd rather have like whatever, or maybe you'd rather not have meat at all. You can put whatever you like on there and it doesn't have to be traditional foods. If you don't want to, you can just put whatever you're feeling. Uh, watercress is the green that I'm putting on top of it. I personally like to have a little something fresh that's uh, raw on top of it. Watercress have a really nice kind of peppery taste to it. It's something that you can either gather out spring through summer, I believe, um, in like river and stream beds. And then also um, you can just get in the store. I got this one in the store. So what are you doing to that there? So the way that you process it, it's kind of like if you got fresh herbs, like say like, for example, like parsley, um, you'd be pinching off um, sections of it. And that's like a good way to like have it not get bruised. Um, and so like, there's like these little pieces, you can kind of see them there. It's like a little stem that comes off the main one. And then it's like the leaf on there. So, I mean, I think this is kind of like use your own creativity and however you feel like maybe you don't like a lot of stem on there. If you're eating watercress, you just prefer the leaf. You can just pinch down by the leaf um, instead of doing a lot more um, of the stem. And then, uh, oh, I don't know if I want to go back to the other one or if I'd skipped ahead. Oh, I can't hear you. It, it actually skipped ahead. Give me just one second. Oh, okay, no worries. Okay, so we are actually right here. So then beans, um, I mean, so I chose to do, like I said, the dry beans. I kind of just did these. So these, if anybody, has questions. I know some people are really familiar in the kitchen. Oh yeah, you can play it if you'd like. Some people are really like comfortable in the kitchen. You know, they can cut stuff up all day. 
they can boil stuff all day. Um, okay, this is a reduction. Um, but these are like, I have them on my Instagram. So like, if you're like in three months from now, like, oh, I need a reference for how to cut that up. You can go on there under FF resources um, in my stories and look at all of these videos. Um, so you can get like a quick refresh on how to do it. This is what they call a reduction, which is really just a fancy word of like evaporating broth, essentially. <laughs> it took me four quarters of culinary school and a lot of stress to just learn how to evaporate broth. I don't know why it was a big secret, but this is what they'll charge you for uh, a lot in restaurants. But with a, that one I had just had, the way that I prepared it was I added in, um, I'm sorry, keep going ahead. Here we go. So this one at the beginning, I put in some, uh, a couple pinches of three leaf sumac, the choke cherry, and also wild onion powder. I also, like you'll see in here, I'll put in cedar, but because cedar is a medicine, um, I know some people are like, oh yeah, just go ahead and drink all the cedar and um, maple tea you want, but there are a lot of different varieties of cedar out there. Where I'm at with the red cedar, people warn not to have too much of it. And so for that reason, I put it in last because I recognize that that's a strong medicine as well. Um, it's good for your respiratory system, but I don't want to have it too much in there because, um, you know, too much of a good thing isn't good. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, like what you'll do with this is you'll just literally boil stock until it's halfway or two thirds or even less um, reduce, like evaporating that water out of there. It condenses the flavor. Um, and so also you don't want to add salt until later on, because otherwise that salt's going to be like way more strong than you anticipate it to be. Um, but yeah, that's essentially a reduction, which is just a fancy word for boiling it. And so for the beans, like I said, some people are more comfortable with beans and otherwise there were some other videos that went with it. Um, of course, and prepping it, you'll want to get your beans, put it in a sauce pot, um, put some water in, let it just sit for a couple hours or sit overnight. And then the next day, go ahead and start boiling it. Um, depending on the beans, they might get softer and like edible faster than others. So I would say just kind of watch it. Um, I take out for me like a bean at a time, maybe and like press it together or put like, you know, like chew it and see like how raw or not it is um but it's always good to watch it because i've certainly had the mishap of like walking away getting caught up in a conversation the next thing i know the smoke alarm is going off <laughs> so that's just kind of my forewarning about that um, but it's not too hard to prepare and again you can put these away um, for later if you're not trying to put all this together right now Ooh. I think that's the last one because some part of it you're going to explain. Yeah, and so the part I'm gonna be doing live here is I'm going to be making the corn mush live. Um, if you were to make this, um, you can use water if you want, that's fine. I'm using broth because that adds more of a savory flavor into it. And so, um, especially since I'm eating this for dinner and my family will be eating this for dinner tonight. Um, you know, like I like to have like that savory element to it as the base. Um, so I'll be cooking that on the stove. So you'll see that. Um, and I'll also be cooking the venison. I'll be adding in that reduction. It's ground venison. It's venison I got from my um, partner's brother-in-law who went out and hunted it. And then I'll also be, hold on. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the last element. Oh, I'm gonna be like, just like sauteing up the, um, the zucchini and the summer squash and the onions. Uh, you'll probably see me let it like 
try and brown up a little bit. Uh, when you allow for onions in particular to brown, you're kind of starting to caramelize that. And the onions go from being like really intense and spicy kind of to being like, like pretty sweet. And so it's kind of like a nice element because much like life, when you're cooking, it's ideal to like try and strike a balance, right? Like you've got your five flavors, salty, bitter, sour, sweet, and then what people call umami, which is kind of like this like savory flavor that you get a lot from like, say like Parmesan um, or even like to be straight up MSG, which is naturally occurring. Um, so uh, just to give you like an idea of like what umami might taste like. Um, so that's kind of one way to like to troubleshoot when you're cooking. If like something's too salty, go ahead and add something sweet in there, like add something that's bitter or, you know, any one of those combinations. And so that's kind of a little bit of the idea of like trying to strike a little bit of balance. And that's why I'm adding in the jelly as well, even though it seems like kind of a weird thing. It kind of helps to get all of those going together and kind of um, with these different ingredients, you'll have different textures too, which makes it more enjoyable. Um, when you're trying to balance things, you want to balance out like if it's too, there's a lot of soft things going on as something crunchy and that will make it more enjoyable and interesting than just like, I don't know, just all, all crunchy or all um, just soft. So, yeah. So I'm going to transition over there. Um, I don't know if you want to like take some more questions or um, talking amongst each other, giving one like a bathroom break. <laughs> sure. Well, I'll read a comment from Carlene Daniels just in the comments while you go over to the other one. Okay. Uh, and also let me know if it echoes. Okay. You might have both of these on the same time. Sure. Uh, the comment for the folks who are on Facebook says, it's exciting to learn of the seafood such as clams, crab, octopus, lobster, halibut, salmon, etc as indigenous sovereign foods from the coasts. I'm from the Canadian Sask Prairies, Nakota Nahia. Learning of these foods has been incredible. To me, these have always seemed out of reach or top shelf for rich people. It's powerful to realize how vast the continent is. Gosh, don't I understand that? My ancestors ate the bougiest food. It's like wood smoked salmon and chia hazelnut pudding with all of these just fancy foods <laughs> so I certainly understand what you mean but let me go and get Brit see how she's set up Mia do you have that same experience with your folks where you're like geez this is a really like fancy meal but then it's your traditional foods Actually, like, <clears throat> neither of my parents really, like, cook a lot of traditional foods. Like, I think, like, I'm the, like, the first one in my family to, like, try to make them on my own. I mean, um, so they're more, like, I don't know. And I'm also, like, trying really simple stuff, like, three sister soup. So it's never really, like, that bougie, but they're, like, really surprised at, like, oh, this is, like, really good. And, like, you only use, like, five red, like ingredients so it's more me impressing them but <laughs> I had a wonderful meal at this place called Makamham which is these two um I think they're Ohlone uh relatives who they opened up a pop-up restaurant in Oakland in the back of a bookstore and you know prior 
pandemic, it was really nice to just go and see like what a full meal would look like if made totally indigenous. Because I do the same thing as you, right? I, I figure out like the smaller ways to integrate things into my diet or that sort of thing. So we're all on a path. <laughs> Yeah, some of us like definitely like I'm definitely taking that path slower and just like baby steps, we'll see. But mm -hmm. it's a constant process. Yeah, well, it looks like we've got um Brit is on for cooking, but we gotta get her mic set up. So it's gonna be just one more minute. Thanks everyone for your patience. <laughs> Hey, Britt, I'm not sure if you can hear us, but we cannot hear you. Oh, yeah, there we go. Hi. <laughs> hey, yeah, so I was just saying that, like, you know, um, you know, it's, it's pretty easy just to, like, prep this stuff ahead of time. And I'm going to be moving this camera around, so my apologies in advance for, like, any awkward uh, filming. <laughs> Those videos were kind of, like, my first go at trying the stand and... Um, Having time videos. So this is the onions and then the zucchini and the summer squash. Um, in terms of like if you're trying to grow things, I can definitely say from my own uh, constantly learning how to garden. Uh, the zucchini and the summer squash are a little bit more forgiving than other squashes. Thank God. <laughs> Sometimes that's the only thing we've got in some years. Um, but I'm definitely like up for trying and hoping for more success in the future. So this one here, like I'm kind of just gonna let it do its thing. Um, you can add olive oil if you want. I think I'm actually gonna add butter. Um, you know, it, sometimes I feel like there's like this purity myth within the movement maybe where it's like, I don't know, only use I don't know, like deer fat or bison fat or bear fat or the healthiest of stuff. But again, it's like, it's baby steps, right? Like you can feel free and unguilty to like mix things that are quote unquote, like colonial um, and, and decolonial. Um, and then kind of just, I think the point of it is like not to get so wrapped up in an ideal version of what like uh, traditional food can be that it stops you from engaging in like cooking it and bringing it into your, your life. Mm -hmm. Because if you allow it to like, that kind of stuff to stop you, then you'll never have it in your life. And it's better to take those baby steps, I think, um, and experiment or use things that are comfortable to you um, to get those like in your kitchen to your like your family life and stuff. Um, so I'm using butter, but this one is actually just like, I think it's actually made out of olive oil <laughs> with that being said. But I personally, like growing up in the South, um, just like general food, like we do a lot of like sauteed stuff with like butter and I find it very comforting. Um, and I think that comforting foods are off, like oftentimes the ones that people will go back to. So I'm personally okay with using some butter in this. Go ahead and turn that. Some of that's a brown. And then, oh gosh. Uh, readjust this camera here and this is just my family kitchen it's no like professional kitchen so 
throw these stuff around. So I'm gonna eat this uh, venison and start like any ground beef. So I'm gonna go ahead and put it in the pan. Oftentimes, like if you haven't worked with game before, it's a lot leaner than say like cow or even like chicken. And so sometimes it's good to add the fat in. I'm gonna wash my hands real quick. when you add that fat in, it'll add the moisture. And so um, don't be afraid to do that, but you know, everything in moderation, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you're saying, you know, use the things available to you. I've seen where I've needed duck fat for recipes and I'm like, where would I even get duck fat or deer fat? Then I went on, you know, I'm trying to find it and it's coming from far away. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this isn't what so i didn't make it i didn't make the dish so i'm glad to hear that you're just like go with what you have accessible it's a process of decolonization is a lifelong thing yeah. oh carlina saying i bought a young duck from costco wow i did not know that costco had duck at all awesome yeah and you find a lot like in say like french cooking um like weirdly enough like not only do they have like nettles involved in it which like i was really shook to find out um but they do do a lot of stuff with duck like the comfy for example is literally just like one of their like preservation processes for preserving a duck in the fat so if you go to like a french market or something like that that might be like one place um and of course it might be like more of an urban setting that might be one place to find um some of that that duck fat if you need it what i'm also gonna do too um, let me put this up here. I'm kind of doing four things actually. I've got my oven set at 400. I'm gonna go ahead and take the butternut squash that I prepared. I'm just gonna put it out on my baking sheet um, and just kind of like spread it out. And then I'm actually gonna take that olive oil and then just kind of coat it with that and like maybe some salt a little bit. So just like just to help it kind of um, brown up. Ooh, sorry, that's a new, new bottle. So I used the cat being off. And sometimes like, like I said, like some of it's just like, you know, I think one of the, the beautiful things about a kitchen is like, it's very sensory laden. Um, you know, you get the smells, you get the like the sounds and feel and everything. And of course, like the taste. And um, so some of these I feel like, you know, just use that eye sensory and just, and the nose and just like keep the eye out, just smell for things. Sometimes that will help you know when it's done. So I'm actually just gonna stick it in the oven in the middle shelf and just let that go. And you'll probably notice me stepping away a lot during this to wash my hands, it's just like this habit that day of course enemy of like you know just constant washing your hands in culinary school so don't mind me it was the habit like not being able to have long nails that I've never been able to break after culinary school so then I know for um 
one of the more valuable things that I learned while in school was a little bit of like time management when cooking. So like, if you've got some stuff going on, I personally had the experience before where as I was like going into that more intense learning, like I had a little like anxiety around trying to figure out timing of things, which went against what my mom taught me, which is, you know, like much like beating, so I'll have to be Bert. If you, uh, if you have like any negative thoughts or emotions, you know, like step away. Uh, one of the things like she would say, you know, like I love your dad, you know, so like if I was mad at him, and it's time to cook, I'm gonna go ahead and just like step away because I love him and like if I'm putting that bad energy in there, like I'm essentially making poison. And if I love him, like why would I feed him poison? So that was kind of something I really struggled with because I had that teaching, but that's not the way the the industry goes. Um so I know like for me, like I've thankfully gotten better at time management, but sometimes it's good to have that game plan and that's kind of how like I navigated that. And so while these are cooking and doing this thing and then also like the squash is doing this thing in the oven i'm gonna go ahead and start up um start up the corn mush which is gonna happen back here and i'll kind of show y'all bringing closer to the camera bring the ca camera closer to y'all as i do it or actually that's just gonna do its thing so we can move this over here so i'm gonna take the beef stock um, I'm using beef because it kind of complements deer or elk being dark meats, but you can totally make your own stock if you want. Again, stocks are pretty easy to do. Like you would just take, um, you don't even have to have any of what they call mirafal, which is the onion, the carrot, and the celery. You can just take the straight up bones if you want. I've totally done that for a time to I just done the, the pork bones. Um, like if you have some some bones and some of those animals for whatever you're cooking and like make the sock throw it in some water and then bring it to a simmer the way that my uh instructor had kind of described like what you want for the bubbles for a stock if you're going to make that is that you want the bubbles to be essentially like champagne size so like very small bubbles um because if the stock boils it's going to get cloudy but like you can kind of see like that's going to burn off a little bit of stuff from before um but uh if it boils, it's gonna get cloudy. Um, so a good way to you know, kind of keep it clear, like how you see like in these stocks from the, um, the stores, just to have that small, small bubbles going on. So I'm gonna let that come boiling, to boil. It, you said it makes it huh? foggy. It makes it foggy if you boil it. Yeah, um, I'm forgetting the science behind that, but they are always like, be really careful not to, to make it have like that roll, rolling boil. You wanna have like a small champagne size bubble kind of situation going on. It's like a visual, that's what I always think of. And I also do that for soups too. Like that was really helpful to learn how to stock. So I knew that like, if I'm making a soup, I don't have to have that boiling. And that actually helps to like, still get the flavor from the vegetables and the meat while not having like, say for example, like my carrots or potatoes like falling apart all over the place. Um, it still remains like that shape and stuff while I see that flavor in, this, in the soup. So that's kind of like a good one to apply across the different types of uh, foods that you're doing. But of course, just to be clear, we're not making a stock here or, <laughs> or soup. Um, it's just a, some things like I think of like when I, I make these.
And I'm gonna grab the pen real quick. Be ready. So are there like any questions that people might have? Cause it's kind of just gonna do its thing for a while. Sure, uh, actually, we had someone who had a question earlier named Lori. Uh, Lori, I'm gonna go and ask if you would come ask your questions while we talk with Britt. Hi, okay, um, I don't remember what my questions were because I got so involved in what she was cooking. Oh. <laughs> No worries. <laughs> it took me right away to some some other place. Uh, oh, what uh, ceremony foods do you cook? Like what what foods do you have in your uh, ceremonies? Uh, I mean, I can't speak too extensively on that, but I will say that it kind of depends, like uh, what tribe the ceremony is for and what ceremony it is. Um, so I mean, like for example, like salmon is real big here and seafood because we're here on the coast. Um, here in Coast Salish country and like uh, Tulalip specifically. So, I mean, that's kind of like foods that we eat like every day here. Um, but those might be some of those, I mean, obviously like for some others, like, yeah, it's just gonna, it's gonna depend. I mean, I've had elders too um, talk about how they just have like, you know, just straight up soup a lot, like nothing like real fancy, you know, no pureed soups or nothing like that for like say some that are like more plains um but you know just like a beef stew or or something like that with maybe some fried bread um i have to say it's a little bit of a catch-22 um though i do enjoy the occasional piece of fried bread i might get every six months or two a year um on my own principle not speaking for anyone else just my own um i don't make it just because i i kind of see that like well i honor that it's it's been a survival food and something that's got our people through like really tough times. I also recognize that it's not a food that's necessarily helping us health-wise anymore. Uh, and so for me, unless we got like snowed in here, which we totally did once uh, being here on the north side of Res rather than the south side here. Um, you know, like that was one time I made it, but so for those occasions, like usually if fried bread's being made, somebody else makes it. Um, so also that's the catch my two, like if I do make fried bread, mine sucks. <laughs> straight up it sucks <laughs> so there's the catch 22 um but you know they do talk about having like those just a simple soup a simple soup and um and some some fry bread but it's just gonna kind of depend from tribe to tribe and what the ceremony is and stuff um i think that's about like probably what i can say on that <laughs> okay well thank you very much I was just trying to see if it was, um, if, if the way you did your ceremonies were similar to the way we did because certain ceremonies call for specific foods because yeah. of what ceremony. So that's, that's all I wanted to, I just wanted to have a better understanding about other people, what they do with their ceremonies. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, yeah, it's just like, I don't know if I personally have permission to say, <laughs> but it is a good question. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there also is the idea of food and food preparation as ceremony that I know folks talk about because like what Britt was saying, when you're cooking for your family or you're cooking for someone, you put energy into what it is you're cooking. We've heard that also from one of our previous teachers, um, Shannon Francis, even where she was talking about the ceremony of like loving a plant that you are going to then consume and kill that plant, you know, like what is that relationship? So, you know, for everyone, because there's so many tribes, um, ceremony is so specific, you know, but that's a wonderful question. Thanks, Lori. So the um, the minutes are pretty much like round up right now. So what I'm gonna do is add in that uh, reduction, and it's gonna kind of like continue to reduce, but it will add some flavor, and then also allow for me to like get some of the bits that might have become stuck on there, um, unstuck, and to add that flavor back into um, the ground venison. And so I'm gonna let that kind of cook down. I'm gonna turn this down a little bit. Because obviously it's, it's going pretty good. Turn down a little bit more. Turn this down too. So you allowed your veggies to totally brown. Yeah, I kind of like a little bit of a char on it. Um, it gives like a little bit of like a bitter flavor, which I feel like, again, like when you're trying to balance out stuff, like the corn's going to be pretty savory with that broth. And then of course, like the, um, I don't I don't know about the other cedars, like yellow cedar, for example, or like what they have in Oklahoma, or like, you know, there's so many varieties. Um, each are a little different. The red cedar here is like kind of lends itself to being kind of sweet. Hmm. And then the choke cherries too can be a little sweet as well. Um, and so I think having that bitter is going to be good. Um, could you angle your camera just a little bit more towards so we can see? It looks like you're stirring venison, huh? Yeah, so like the venison back there, I've added in that reduction. And so what's gonna go on here is that, that uh, I kind of continue to reduce really, but um, it's gonna also start lending that flavor to the venison itself. I'm gonna go ahead and add in also, I don't know if you can still see in the camera. So now that the broth has been doing a thing and um, kind of boiling, I'm going to go ahead and add in the Oneida uh, white corn. And then I'll be adding in also the uh, Tohoto Odom cornmeal. And then like one thing I'll say, like, um, yeah, y'all are totally right about, you know, like it's going to be a little bit different than depending like what, what it is um, will change like what it is. And also like what the season is too, right? Um, you know, things that grow on the land, like I said, like you're on the land's time, you're not on your own time. And so, um, you know, different things come at different times, um, but just like the way that the seasons work and the, um, the plants work, like maybe some things are like more edible at one time. I actually have a quick, I think it froze. Did it freeze? Britt, can you hear me? I think she did freeze for just a second. Well, it's just you and I for a sec. Hey. I was just about to ask her a question about the, the venison. Like she added a reduction. Was that from was that the 
broth or okay it looked like it was the broth reduction that she then added the shoot i'll have to look at the recipe that um, I into i also was like wondering like did do we have like a recipe to like maybe give to the audience out here who might want to try it or are we just yeah, I know that Brit's Instagram, which I can pull up for everyone and put into the chat, it has all sorts of really wonderful, um, you saw her time lapse videos and other things. Um, so you can, um, so you can see that there. I actually got a note, oh, her phone overheated. So she's mm. transitioning to her computer. Okay, so let me, give me just one second. I will go over and see if we can pull in Brit on her computer here. There hey, sorry about that, y'all. My phone overheated. No like worries. I said, it's like the first time for me using it. So, you know, I guess by any means necessary. Um, but yeah, I'm just gonna turn that down a little bit. I'm gonna add in a little bit more and then I'm just gonna kind of let it do its thing. It's gonna hydrate. It's kind of like making grits, I guess. I think Mia had a question about your reduction. Yeah, I was wondering what the reduction like was exactly. Was that the broth from? Yeah, so that was a beef stock. So like essentially like if someone's like wanting a recipe, I can try and get that to you later. Um, I hadn't actually like written it down before. Um, this is something I kind of just like made on the side for my family one day. But um, yeah, so it was uh, the beef stock. And then I added in, like, if you look at the video um, towards the beginning, I added in choke cherry, three leaf sumac, and then also um, wild onion powder. I'm gonna turn this off. And, uh, and then later towards the end, once it's, it reduced quite a bit, um, I added in the, um, the cedar, the red cedar. And then I also, because uh, you don't want to eat cedar, um, a little bit of cedar. And this is also gonna boil and pop. So kind of just like a heads up that that might happen if you have like little ones or animals that like to get way too close to the stove. Um, and I probably put it like two or one because sometimes at least for me on this particular stove, uh, sometimes three is too much. Um, but yeah, like I would, I used a strainer, a mesh strainer. I poured the um, reduction in there to get out like any of the the loose cedar that was in there. So that way it wouldn't be in with, uh, with that venice in there. Just looking at your Instagram at the same time. Yeah. Under the food section at the top. Wow, yum. Looks like you're making hominy. Yeah, I really encourage people to go look at it, especially because you can see there's all steps along the, the food processing um, what would you call it, path, right? So mm -hmm. you can see how to make tea. Looks like this one you're butchering. Um, the next one you're doing nettles. This looks like it's some sort of yummy chocolate chia, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> well, I mean, it just, maybe, could I pull something up quickly and have you tell oh, us? Yeah, that would be great. I'm gonna check on this uh, butternut squash. Sure. I know that kitchen probably smells immaculate right now. 
get a little bit behind the scenes of my mess. <laughs> so what I was looking at is this. What what is this right here? So um, that was at the Great Lakes Inner Tribal Food Summit in 2019. Uh, a kind of shared southeastern dish is what's called kananchi in Cherokee. Uh, we have a different word for it in Choctaw, um, but it's usually associated actually with Cherokee people. So that was my friend Taylor Barton there. Um, she grew up with her grandmother, Edith Knight, who's a Cherokee national treasurer, who was, she's passed. And she was really well known for her, uh, her kananchi and tear dresses. So we were uh, cracking open the hickory nut shells. And what I can say is sometimes the ancestors really did have the best technology. Um, we've definitely tried, Taylor and I, to make this uh, and other things that weren't, uh, then they call it a bedogan, bedogan over there in the Great Lakes. Um, I think our word for it is kite. Um, it's either the Cherokee or Choctaw where I'm kind of forgetting. But even though the, the hickory nuts, like it took quite a bit of work to get them open with the kite um, or the bedogan. Um, when we tried to use a different kind of mortar and pestle, uh, it was either near impossible to break them or, you know, like in that one, you might be able to get five hickory nuts in. Hmm. Uh, in the other morning pestle, we might be able to get one and then it would still take forever or it wouldn't actually break at all. Um, folks have tried to break open the hickory nuts and blenders and it's broken blenders before. So uh, using the bedogan or, uh, or a kitty was actually like the best technology, I think, that was created for that particular kind of food processing. Yeah, you can see one of the hickory nuts falling out there. Um, so Seems I really like want to get, <laughs> get me one. <laughs> yeah. This looks like a wonderful gathering that you went to. That in, what was it called? The intertribal food gathering. Yeah, the Great Lakes intertribal food gathering. Uh, they actually have a digital one coming up. Um, I think if you look at the Native American Food Association, um, they should be able to have a, a poster somewhere of it. And I think they might still be taking entries. You'd have to look for like folks who want to present. So I know. Um, like I might've gone to culinary school and, you know, and sometimes do like pop-ups and stuff like I collective, but I know my parents can run circles around me, butchering and cooking traditional foods and gathering and just, um, so uh, I know there's a lot of aunties and uncles and uh, grandmothers and grandfathers out there that can run circles around us. <laughs> uh, folks with, that might have a title of chef. So, um, you know, definitely if you're interested in presenting, um, I would definitely go check it out. It's a really great gathering, especially when COVID restrictions aren't together. It's probably my favorite one because it's 95% all out on the land, which is really great. I'm gonna check on this, uh, this learnout swash here. Let's stir this. Um, one thing I'll add to the, the question that Lori um, said is, you know, like I think, in cooking for the community in different capacities. One of the beautiful things that like I thought about um, is the fact that, and mostly also too, um, from like whenever they have those uh, Facebook posts saying like describe your job in the simplest terms and like it's kind of meant to be kind of weird. And I was like, I take the parts of animals and plants and I put heat to it and feed it to people. <laughs> um, but we really are taking like, um, you know, the, the bodies of plants and animals, um, hopefully taken in a good way, but you know, either way and like making them in such a way as to help life go on. And I think that's a really beautiful way to think about cooking and the relationship in that circle. Um, 
and like how we continue as a people and interact. So it's like, it's not so, um, it's not just about life, there is death there and sacrifice too. And I think um, acknowledging that duality of cooking and eating is a really beautiful thing. Though I feel like it also feels like a big responsibility. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of see that this cornmeal here is starting to um, definitely hydrate some more and thicken up. So you can kind of continue letting that go. The butternut squash is pretty much cooked, but I kind of want it to ideally have a little bit more um, like browning on it. So I'm letting it go a little bit longer. Um, but you know, like the corn mush is nothing to like be scared of or anything. It's literally just taking a liquid and then putting the cornmeal into it. You don't have to have any kind of fancy cornmeal. You don't have to have, you know, bow and arrow cornmeal or something from like the Tohoto Odom or Oneida. I just really like it because um, there was a time uh, pre-contact in which, you know, there was like well over eight to 9,000 varieties of corn. Um, and when you go to the grocery store, there might be like, you know, hominy and then like you have your option of like white corn, white sweet corn or like yellow sweet corn. Um, or if you go to like the Asian store, you might have like a little bit more variety, to be honest. I've seen some, some interesting corns at H Mart, hmm. but I think what's really nice about these native food producers is, you know, like, again, they're growing their traditional corn. There's some like the Pawnee, for example, whose different kinds of corn almost became extinct. Um, because, you know, moving to Oklahoma, moving off of the lands and, uh, what's become Nebraska, the corn just didn't like it from what I'm told. Um, from the story that's told about it and uh once it started like the seeds went back there and started to grow the corn came back and so um there's a lot of corn and plants that might have been near to the brink of extinction or you know like put in the back of someone's storage unit and now coming back and um these corns oftentimes have uh same with like the beans and the squash they often have like a higher nutritional density than say that sweet corn that you're gonna get in the can in the aisle. But with that being said, like if that's what you have access to, go for it. Cause you know, still good to get your, your vegetables and stuff and your starches. Um, and again, that's like a step towards the path of being able to get to a place where, um, you know, you can eventually get access to those foods, especially like it's a lot easier if it's already incorporated into your diet, I would say, rather than like kind of try and like invent the will, so to say. Um, yeah, so you can we see had... here with the, the venison, though there is quite a bit of reduction in there, it's, it's cooked down some more. So now those flavors are in there and it's gonna be like even more um, intense flavor. So I think that's gonna be pretty nice with everything. Um, because the thing I think to remember with starches in particular, um, I feel like they kind of just like suck up flavor to be honest. Um, I like that these, like this, the corn, um, it had because of the way it was processed kind of like a nuttier flavor which is really delicious but you know like sometimes you have to add a little bit more um salt or like whatever to to it which is again like why i use the broth instead of just water so i can get a little bit more flavor out of that um but that's just something to think about like whenever you're working with starches in general is they're going to kind of uh, suck up a lot more flavor mm -hmm. We had a uh, Deb from the Pawnee Seed Preservation Project as one of our teachers last season. Yeah. So if anyone wants to go see about 
Pawnee Corn. Um, she did a really wonderful like show and tell garden tour. Oh, it was just so fun. And also to see how she keeps her corn. Like speaking of national treasure, that lady. Definitely. I'm so excited about her work. And I've like, I've her niece, Hello Echo Hop, um, who's a member of our collective. She'll go pre-COVID, go down to Pawnee and cook for the community and then like bring back some of that corn. And you can actually, if you go to the Pawnee Sea Preservation Project Facebook, message them directly and then say like, hey, I would like to have a, a bag of your Pawnee blue corn meal. They'll send it to you. Um, I think it's like 15 or $20 per pound, um, but it's really beautiful corn. It's so delicious. Um, I love using it for like, if you made like the, the, um, the corn mush, Hillel's definitely made corn mush out of it. I've made corn mush out of it. I made banaha with it. And so it's like really nice to this beautiful blue kind of purpley color, especially if you start adding ash to it, which I actually didn't add ash to it. So you don't have to add ash to your, to your, um, to your mush. But there's always an option if you'd like. But yeah, it's just, a, it's a beautiful corn and I feel so blessed to be able to get access to something that, you know, um, has that kind of story and that history. And every time um, that I've come across Deb talking about that or Rowan White, who's a, a Mohawk sea keeper that does great work, um, I always cry because I just think it's such a, a such a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was a, additionally, we had James Calabasas who was talking about ancestral seed storage systems and food storage systems last season. And just seeing the, the long-term commitment to, that's like some food sovereignty initiatives that span the, the length of humanity, <laughs> you know, developed over literally like thousands and thousands of years. That's a really true and deep love for your people when you're thinking about how to preserve seeds for a hundred years or even beyond that. Yeah, it's so true. And I, I think too, like my, my partner, um, he works for the Tulalip uh, Treaty Department. He looks about how like climate change is impacting the treaty and also like things like the land and um, like access to foods and stuff. And um, it just reminds me that the practice of seed keeping, really any seeds, but especially like our traditional varieties of, of the seeds that we've had since time immemorial, or since whenever like our stories tell us that we got them is so important, especially as we move into this time of climate change and change um, so that we can carry those forward and um, have greater access to food for not just our generation, but generations in the future. So it's important work that we can do today that will go on for generations like you're saying. So I'm gonna probably pull out, let me time check this here. Oh, so we're almost over time here, or we are out over time. So I'm gonna go ahead and pull this. And I'm going to plate it. Um, I think one of the things, so we had a pop-up in New York City years ago in 2017, which was kind of like my introduction to this like, you know, uh, fancy culinary uh, traditional food scene. And being in culinary school, um, you know, I, I went in thinking that that was going to be like easy peasy because I just got done with my master's. Let me tell you, it's the most stressful thing I've ever done. Um, and to be with some people who like I had like such respect for like Natalia Duran and, and Carlos Baca um, and Brian Yazzie um, and even Halal. Halal had gone ahead of me in culinary school and kind of blazed the way. Um, so I wouldn't have as much trouble like speaking up about native foods. Um, 
you know, like it was, I was like kind of nerve wracked. I remember Carlos just like putting some mush down on the, on the plate and be like, look, I don't care who these people are. This is the way we eat at home. So this is, we're going to show them how we eat at home and it's going to be fine. And I was like, you know what? You go, Carlos Baca. You are so right. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to be fancy. Um, you don't have to do it for the gram. But should you want to, I say feel free to play with foods because it's fun. Uh, so I'll kind of give a little bit of tips as I go here. And I'm going to move this and hope that my phone is kind of cooled down now. So we can hopefully like switch over to this. See how awkward this thing is? It's great. <laughs> Yeah, that actually looks pretty cool. You can light things from the top down. That's probably great for food. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because I've seen some other ones and I was like, well, I'm going to have to try and make this whole stand point down. And that seems that seems a little awkward. Let's see here if I can get back into there. You know, I wonder if while you were in culinary school, you experienced where it's the same thing we kind of started out class talking about, right? Like trusting what you were taught and not letting your mind think like I need to change this to make it better yeah so it's fine how it is and even in culinary schools it doesn't need to be fusion it doesn't need to be anything it can be just how it is and I really love to hear that reinforced from chefs who are just like our fruit our foods are fine yeah (laughs) and wonderful so (laughs) I remember having that discussion at that food summit there in that area where that fire is at um I talked about like for trying to launch this. (laughs) Um, I talked to Arlie, like they made us do like, you know, like when you're in school, they make you do like a big project to showcase you've learned about your skills. And they wanted to do a menu that was featuring Choctaw traditional foods, but also showcase traditional foods from here because I'm a guest here on this land. And in addition to that, my partner and his mother had like a highly instrumental role and not only just like making sure that like I didn't quit cause I was like struggling with anxiety, um, but also like financially helping me get through that. So I wanted to honor them as well, as well as, um, you know, the nations here that I'm a guest on. And so um, I did this, this final dish, we have a dish called Wolaszki. Some people call it grape dumplings. I'm gonna have to just point this down. I hope it works. Um, but typically people describe that as uh, grape dumplings. It really translates into dessert dumpling. And I also strongly believe like, even if you find a traditional recipe and they say like, for example, you have to use uh, wild grapes or possum grapes. I believe the ancestors, like one, like the access to food all year was not like we have it here. You know, like if you wanted to eat, if you've had a craving for something, I'm pretty sure like the ancestors would not have been against like, you know, throwing some blackberry juice in there. Or like if it was um, persimmon seeds and even though it's kind of like a thicker type of, um a fruit or even papa like they would have just found like some sort of sweet thing anyway to like throw in there you know to be able to make that dish like I don't feel like it has to be so just like only grape dumplings uh only grapes so also you can see here I put the cornmeal on the bottom corn mush on the bottom as a side note you can totally have this for breakfast just plain like this I guess Carlos is like this is the way like we ate it it's fine um but so, I mean, like, again, like, feel free to play. Like, don't feel so, like, I feel like we have a tendency these days as, as people that con- like constantly try and recreate the past. And that's not a bad thing, but to a degree, I think there's a level of like um, idealism that we throw in. 
and it may not be that way. Um, like for example, like I'm doing another project, like cooking's cool. I have like a lot of other interests as well though. So like, for example, there's a, another project I'm working on that deals specifically with the history of Choctaws in the Southeast to try and revitalize um, a certain thing like, which I can't yet say too much about because of the politics, but, um, but you know, like found out in the course of that, that, you know, even though like a lot of people like to think that like our tribes have been around for like these thousands and thousands of years, just as Choctaw people, that's not really the reality of the history. Um, the history is like, we come from mound building people and that when we were at Moundville, like that fell around 1300. And then we had these like 300 years of just kind of wandering. And then eventually around 1600 came together as the Choctaw Confederacy. So, I mean, realistically that means that like at this point, We've been a Choctaw people for about 400 years, which means that we just have like 100 years over from being Moundville. So there's not this, this idealized past where we are only Choctaw people and we only did Choctaw things. Um, you know, like there's, there's a broader history there. And so I think that learning about your history and coming to, uh, to terms with it and just knowing that you can play around with stuff don't be pan indian <laughs> but you know but don't um don't put yourself in a box either because the ancestors certainly didn't um, put themselves in a box outside of like what their environment was and what they had access to so if you feel like having blackberries not great dumplings you have those blackberries in the great or in the walashki um don't feel confined to just only grapes we got a, a nice comment from Lori in the chat that says, our traditional foods are beautiful. I try not to compare our foods to other cultures' foods. No competition, just enjoyment. So true. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. So yeah, you could kind of just play around with it and like, you know, different colors. You say sometimes, you know, sometimes you eat your eyes first. So feel free to play around. Like you, you can have some fun with with your foods. Maybe don't throw them. <laughs> well, I am eating that with my eyes right now. Um, and then <laughs> actually, I'm gonna go ahead and put this on here. We also had a question from the Facebook community asking if you could replace venison with something else like buffalo. But I feel maybe you already answered this. Yeah, I mean, like like I said, like the. Um, the corn mush is the base, but whatever you have available to you, use. Like, I mean, like, even if you don't yet feel comfortable with game, there's certainly people in my community that don't feel comfortable um, eating game. But okay, you can put, like, if you want to put really any kind of protein in there, go for it. Um, You're putting jelly on meat right now? Yeah, like really on all of it. Mm. Um, if I put it on a plate, I'd try and be a little fancier, but... <laughs> that's all good so um and one thing I'll also say too like if you want to have fun with salad um one thing they taught us in culinary school is like put a little bit at a time on there like so colors will make it more visually interesting and then also adding like different textures so like you know like you got like these kind of circular shapes here you have these like square shapes these like oval shapes of the bean and then of course like the um the venison there um and then like now there's like these kind of shapes going on top. Um, and usually like if you add a little bit at a time, it's gonna add some height, which is gonna add some like visual interesting elements to it. And that might make it uh, more appeasing to you to, to eat that dish or maybe like, you know, like your partner, maybe they're like, uh, I don't know about greens. <laughs> <laughs> or 
or whatever like the hangout might be um like yeah just feel free to to play with it feel free to like play with colors and shapes and hype and textures and um yeah and that'll that'll help make the meal more fun which will help you to keep going back to it which i really feel like is the name of the game like you want to be able to not feel too over overstressed or overbearing or daunted and we want to be able to bring these into our lives and into our kitchens and into our families um and what I'll say too, like one thing we tell the folks um, in their diabetes program too, is even if you don't like something, they say that like, uh, if you interact with it 17 times, whether that be like tasting it or smelling it or just seeing it or just being around it, um, you have a higher chance of eventually liking those foods. Um, so even if upon first or even fifth impression of something, um, feel free to just keep, keep trying and maybe eventually you'll, you'll start to like it. Well, that being said, there's still some things that, um, what they tell us to say, I haven't quite yet developed the palate for yet. <laughs> still having a little bit of a hard time with mutton, but maybe one day I will like mutton. But yeah, that's, that's my demo. Yeah. Well, um, I just want to tell you, thank you. And I wonder if we could see you and open yeah. up the thing for last comments from you. I'll close this out. And it's dinner time, I know, in a lot of places. So we're ready to go after watching that. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, everyone, for joining us. Uh, thank you for being patient with me uh, and being compassionate as well uh, as I made my way through, through this class. And um, like I said, like I really want to help people bring these things into their, into their lives and their kitchen, their family, and their community. So um, I definitely understand if maybe there was like, way things were cut or something that like you want a, a refresher on and see like how that was done. So, um, you know, feel free to hit up my Instagram, check that out. Um, I can certainly like maybe the next time, if that's like too fast, uh, try and maybe make a little video when it's going slower the next time I work with whatever produce or anything that was. So I hope that was helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you to the class who continues to come out week over week. And to Ibex Puppetry, who we are partnered with alongside Green Feather Foundation, Grinding Stone Collective, and Her Many Voices Foundation. So go check out iCollective. Their Facebook is wonderful. And I, oh, I wanted to take just one more second to do a very quick screen share. We have a really cool, I think, giveaway coming up. For folks who don't know, we do a giveaway at the end of every month, which in our panels, we bring back all of the people who have spoken that month. And then we have um, an in-depth conversation about philosophy and can we get land back this way? What's food sovereignty? What is decolonization? So many things. Um, part of that is we do giveaways this one that's coming up for this month is actually we have two of these Helio premium solar light power banks. So when you go out camping, any kind of thing like that, you can plug your cell phone into it only you know you're supposed to be enjoying technology or enjoying the outdoors so just take pictures with it but you can charge your cell phone it's got usb okay. i've got one of these in my car but it's solar so it charges itself you just leave it out and it'll charge um these were brought to us by trees water people uh, who have been a really long and generous just supporter of first foods 
Um, they gifted us these. They're from Helio, who focus on on making a light situations for kids to study with. And so in order to not use things like kerosene or other things that would be harmful to the young people's lungs, they make these really cool, sustainable, clean and safe lights. I mean, these things are bright as heck. So we're gonna be giving away two of those uh, in two weeks from now. So we got class next week, same time, same channel, Zoom, and, uh, and we'll be giving these away. So thank you so much to Britt. Thanks, Mia. Thanks, everybody. Catch you next time. Um, thank you for your questions, too. Mm -hmm. Peace, Lechke. Bye. Bye.